You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good night, everyone. Good evening. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about an extraordinary Jewish personality, Yitzhak Rabin, the warrior for peace. Rabin was a very paradoxical person, a man of paradoxes. He was a peace broker, and at the same time he was a commander who did not hesitate to use force and strength. He was a blunt, straightforward person who served in diplomatic posts and political roles. He was known for his political positions, uh, ambassador to the U.S., defense minister of Israel, prime minister twice, yet he did not play politics. He was a straight shooter. His legacy is that he orchestrated the winning of the Six-Day War in 1967, and we're going to spend 30 years of Israeli history from 1967, really, mid-60s to the mid-90s, when there would be evolve the peace with Egypt, the peace with Jordan, and the Oslo Peace Accords. And we'll end with Rabin's tragic death, murdered at the hands of a Jewish uh, radical, and his bold pursuit, in his attempt to make his bold pursuit of peace with the Palestinians. And then we'll also have to talk about how the Oslo Accords really set the ground for the debates that are going on today about annexation, areas A, B, C, that was all set down in the uh, Oslo Peace Accords. And also another very relevant issue is, does the country make, does Israel make such existential decisions about its borders, about land, ceding land, or annexing land with a majority or more of a consensus so these are some of the issues that we will broach. Let's start with Rabin's early life. He was born in Jerusalem, grew up in Tel Aviv to a classic pioneer Zionist family. His father, Nehemiah Rubitsov, which is where Rabin came from, was an American. He grew up in America, born in Russia, recruited to the Jewish Legion in World War I to serve in the Jewish forces with the British, and stayed in Palestine. And this will impact Rabin and his relationship with the United States, where he served as ambassador and, uh, of course, relationship to the American Jewish community and to the presidency of America as well. His mother, Nehemia, came from a religious family, fled Russia during the revolution, got on a boat to Palestine, and was swept up in the idealism of the Zionists. But really, she was fleeing the revolution. And she, uh, Rabin credits his personality of coming from her. Serious, he didn't joke much, principled and humorless, strong, sometimes to the point of being stubborn. And he went to agriculture school and was quickly recruited into the Haganah, the Jewish Defense Force, and then was asked to join the Palmach, which, is the, which was like the special forces in the Jewish defense. And they were gathered as a possible fighting force in case the Nazis, the Germans, would invade during World War II. He led that force in a famous breakout of Jewish uh, immigrants who were locked up by the British in the 
camp, DP camp in Atlit, near Haifa, and they broke them out and saved 200 uh, of these immigrants uh, and brought them into Israel. He became the chief of operations of the Palmach during the Israel War of Independence, and this is really where he really started to make his mark. He was in charge of the Palmach's Jerusalem Brigade, and they were instrumental in keeping the road to Jerusalem open, uh, which allowed Jerusalem to be resupplied during the siege. He uh, led another very contentious and difficult period of Jewish history. Uh, Menachem Begin's uh, Irgun brought weapons into the country after the Declaration of Independence. Ben-Gurion demanded that they be handed over to the IDF. The terms were not properly negotiated, and when the boat landed in Tel Aviv, Ben-Gurion gave the orders to fire on the boat, and Rabin is the one who carried out those orders. And while it was very difficult for him, as we see, he was a military man, he was a commander par excellence. He was somewhat of a loner by personality, and because of that, he made an effective commander. He wasn't the slap-on-the-back type, but he commanded respect from his troops. And he was direct, which they appreciated, and these traits are not unusual in the army, but more unusual in politics. Now, he started, he attained the position of IDF Chief of Staff in 1964, which would basically meant he ran the army. And this is why really so much of the 1967 Six-Day Miraculous uh, War is attributed to him, because he really built up the army into a, uh, uh, a strong, powerful, effective fighting force, and he laid the groundwork and the strategy for that incredible win against the combined five Arab armies in six days. And Moshe Dayan was brought in as defense minister at the last minute, uh, and as generally was the figurehead. But the famous picture of the three walking generals walking into the old city of Jerusalem after it was reconquered was Dayan flanked by Rabin on the other side and Narkis on another side. Uh, during this time, right before the Six-Day War, he was caught between the generals who were ready to launch a preemptive strike and the politicians who were delaying it. And they said that two weeks before, there was an incident where some attributed it as a nervous breakdown. He was incapacitated for 24 hours. Uh, some say he even asked to resign. Golda Meir would, sorry, um, the Prime Minister, uh, Livia Shkol, would not accept his resignation. And he then re-energized and, as we know, carried out the victory. But we see that he was human, even though he had nerves of steel, he still was human and still had uh, feelings behind that tough exterior. Right after the Six-Day War, uh, his political career was launched. And in fact, before the war, he'd already asked Levia Shkold to be put in for a transfer to the United States as ambassador, which was a very strange move. Uh, no one understood it, and he wasn't the diplomatic type. 
But in his mind, there was a goal, and that was people don't realize that before the 67 war, America was not such an ally of Israel. Uh, Israel had to go to England and France to get its arms. The French Mirage jets were the mainstay of the Air Force. But Rabin saw that waning, and sure enough, the French withheld parts and deliveries. And he saw the future in the United States, in the political alliance with the U.S., and he wanted to work on that. And, of course, his vision was very prescient because uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship would turn out to be, of course, a major, major player in the history of the development of Israel, and especially of the IDF and of the army. In 1973, he came back, and this was just as Golda Meir was moving out. And uh, the Yom Kippur War, we talked about when we spoke about Golda Meir, she did not launch the preemptive strike, uh, a traumatic war, and a year later she resigns. Everyone expected Shimon Peres to get the prime ministership, but uh, the labor leaders chose a younger Perez, uh, sorry, younger Moshe, uh, Itzhak Rabin over Shimon Peres. And the two had a very interesting relationship over the years. Uh, it is reported that they did not get along. They were very different. Perez was the diplomat. He was the dreamer. He was the uh, operator. Rabin, direct, uh, very different. And they locked horns and butted heads at times. But their careers, as we see, will overlap and finally uh, come to a peace between them. Um, over this period, from 73 until 77, when he was prime minister, uh, was the period when the Americans were pressuring Israel to withdraw from uh, Yudan Shamron, known as the West Bank, and the Sinai, and the Golan Heights. And Rabin withstood the pressure. There were enormous pressures. He had had a relationship with Richard Nixon before, and they were in good terms. Henry Kissinger was the Secretary of State German Jew, war refugee, achieved the highest levels of American power in government, uh, which was very rare for a Jew then. And people were concerned that Kissinger was bending over backwards to show he wasn't biased towards Israel. And Rabin had to navigate all of this. He finally in 75, after holding out against them, finally in 75 did come to an agreement to pull back partway through the Sinai. And this shows two things. One, that his concern for security was foremost in all of his peace negotiations. So yes, he was a warrior of peace, but he was the warrior who made sure, who didn't broker peace at the expense of security, or at least tried not to. And we'll see that will become complicated. And he also could negotiate. And so in 75, he pulled back and said that laid the groundwork for what a few years later would be the peace agreement with Egypt, with Anwar Sadat coming to Jerusalem, which Menachem Begin would finalize. But Rabin got the, got, uh, the wheels rolling. Uh, when he was being pressured, he said to uh, Kissinger, he said that Believe me, I want peace more than anyone. My son is serving in Sinai. 
in a tank platoon. My son-in-law is a commander in tanks. And me, more than anyone, wants peace, but not at the expense of security. Uh, in 1976, Air France jet leaving Israel is hijacked. It's brought to Entebbe in Uganda, and the terrorists are demanding the release of prisoners. And even though Rabin and Begin, in a show of unity, were ready to negotiate if they had to, there was a threat of killing the hostages, the army came up with a plan to rescue them, and in the famous story, uh, they sent planes into the airport in Uganda, in Kampala, and uh, carried off a swashbuckling, miraculous rescue with only a few people killed. One of them, Yoni Netanyahu, Benjamin's brother, who was the commander of the operation on the ground. And Rabin gave the order to do the rescue and to great acclaim. And it was another high moment for Israel and uh, for the fight against terrorism. So the next year, when Rabin was in the United States on a trip to the White House, his wife was spotted taking money out of a bank account in Washington, D.C., out of a bank in Washington, D.C., and it came out through the press that they had a bank account in Washington dating back to their ambassadorial days uh, with a significant sum of money. This was against Israeli law. And here we see the man of principle. Rabin would not blame it on his wife. Both their names were on the account, even though she managed all these things. And he resigned as prime minister. And for the next 15 years, he would be in the Knesset, serving on the foreign relations and uh, defense committees. He then became minister of defense uh, from 84 to 90 under a national unity government. And during the first intifada, which happened at that point, uh, the Palestinians were demonstrating, throwing Molotov cocktails, uh, shooting. 16 Israeli civilians were killed, 11 soldiers over the course of months. And Rabin was known for his iron fist policies to put down the intifada, the terrorist uh, demonstrations going on. And he was known as the bone breaker. So the man, once again, who had become the man of peace was known as the tough military man. He imposed detentions, demolition of houses, closed down Palestinian newspapers, deported agitators, until it was finally put down. And in 1992, he ran against Shimon Peres once again and won as Labour Party Prime Minister, formed a government. And this is where uh, he came in on a policy of making change. He came in on a policy of making peace with the Palestinians. The Gulf War in Iraq had changed the Middle Eastern dynamic and at first, his strategy was to not speak to Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat, remember, had Jewish blood on his hands. Uh, the 1973 Olympics, uh, the Klingoffer, a, a Jew in a wheelchair who was pushed off a Greek boat by Palestinian PLO terrorists. And um, 
he said he would not negotiate with someone like that with blood on his hands. He attempted to negotiate to make links with local Palestinian leadership. Arafat was exiled in Tunisia at this point. But every time he tried and every election he tried to run, Arafat shut it down. Meanwhile, unknown to Rabin, in 1992, Yossi Belin, a close associate of, of Shimon Peres, had started secret negotiations in Oslo, in Norway, with Palestinian representatives of the PLO. And this actually formally was against the law at the time. But when some progress was made, Perez brought it to Rabin, and Rabin realized that this was the only show in town, and so he began to explore it. And there is a famous saying, uh, which I tracked down, was actually attributed to Moshe Dayan, uh, where he said that uh, you don't make peace with your friends, you make peace with your enemies. And he realized that he needed to talk to Arafat. And they began a series of uh, negotiations, which were known as, eventually would be known as the Oslo Accords. And what Rabin demanded was that the PLO renounce violence and change their charter, which called for the destruction of Israel. Let's remember, the Palestinian PLO was not a response to Israel's taking over the West Bank in 1967. It was formed in 1964 to liberate Israel and for the Palestinians to take over Israel. So that had to be changed in the charter, and the process was going to be a gradual step-by-step -step one. And this is where Rabin's foresight is that he realized that to, in order to have security, you had to go step-by-step. -step. And the final matter negotiations, such as what would the final borders be, how much of withdrawal of Israel, uh, the fate of the retur refugees, return of refugees, which the Palestinians demanded, to the West Bank and to Israel proper, and the fate of Jerusalem would be left to later stages. So the first stage of Oslo was that Israel would pull out of Jericho and parts of Gaza, and they would begin to set up a Palestinian form of self-government. And, uh, and this was the first step, and in five years they were meant to negotiate uh, the other terms and the other matters. Now, the signing was meant to go ahead on the White House lawn, and Barbara Walters, famous journalist, asked to have an interview with Rabin and Arafat, and Rabin refused. Um, he, and when he eventually shook hands with Arafat on the lawn, you could see his reticence, almost his revulsion, because he knew there were Jewish blood on those hands. But he made a calculated decision. One is what he said on the White House lawn, enough with the bloodshed. For the sake of our, his children and grandchildren and all of Israel's children and grandchildren. The other one was that he, in his mind, a secular PLO would be better to deal with than a religious Hamas. Because a political issue could be negotiated to an agreement, a religious issue could not. 
religious extremists would not compromise. And uh, now my understanding of it was that Rabin uh, did not expect that goodwill and compromise would bring about a change of heart. From his point of view, this was a calculated move from a position of strength and his calculation was that Arafat would then need to turn around and take out his extremists because otherwise his position would be in jeopardy. This is my understanding of it. And sure enough, he's reputed to have said the Palestinian Authority would fight terrorism more effectively than Israelis ever could because it would operate without the constraints imposed by human rights groups and Israeli Supreme Court. In other words, Arafat would do the dirty work against his right-wing Palestinian extremists. And uh, we'll see how that would unfold. So it was a calculated decision, not a uh, goodwill gestures of compromise that Rabin felt could bring about some change. And on the White House lawn, finally, when uh, the big event occurred, Bill Clinton, along with Arafat and Rabin, uh, and all three would receive the Nobel Peace Prize for this step. Um, the day after the event, and as we said, uh, Rabin cringed at having to shake Arafat's hand, but he did. The agreements were signed. The next day, the Jordanians reached out with peace overtures. And within a year, there would be a peace deal with Jordan as well. Israel pulls out of Jericho and Gaza. The PLO renounces terror and incitement. However, and now we'll see the shaky road ahead. And there are those who believe, who question Arafat's true intentions. Arafat showed up in the White House with a keffiyeh, his military outfit, and his uh, revolver, and still presented himself as the general who would be seemingly at war with Israel. That was his battle. Um, the renunciation of violence was in a separate letter to the Norwegian negotiator, not put into the actual agreement. And the change in the charter, which was supposed to happen immediately, would take four years. And even after it was changed on, their, on the PLO website, they did not put the actual uh, renunciation of saying that they were not out to destroy Israel. They put an amendment saying that this line in the PLO charter that vowed the destruction of Israel was subject to the amendment. So, once again, there are those who questioned his intentions. And uh, there were, uh, it was reported to have said in an internal document of Fatah that Arafat said it would have been suicide for him to overtly change the PLO charter. He was also, a few days after the signing on the White House lawn, in a mosque in South Africa, Arafat said in Arabic um, that he would, the PLO would continue its jihad until they liberated Jerusalem. Now, um, did that mean East Jerusalem? Did that mean Jerusalem and Palestine? 
uh, and there are those who complained and contended that he would say one thing in English to the Western world and another thing in Arabic to his own constituency. And unfortunately, despite the signing of the agreement, the terror attacks continued. Now, part of the agreement of, of the Oslo was that uh, Arafat would do all he could to stop terror, but that was a very subjective thing and not easily defined. Uh, Rabin expected him to arrest terrorists, but the claim was even when they did arrest them, it was a revolving door. They would throw them in jail for a few months and then they would be let out a few months later. And from the signing of the Accords in September 1993 until March 1994, in six months, there were 24 terrorist attacks that brought about deaths of Israelis. Uh, this was an average of one a week. And so, uh, many questioned whether Arafat, of course, could, not, could have cracked down more on the terrorists and stopped it, but did he purposefully turn a blind eye? This is the big question. In March of 1994, on Purim, uh, one of the inhabitants of Jewish inhabitants of Hebron was in the Machpelah, the grave site of the patriarchs and matriarchs, which was shared by the Jews and the Arabs. He walks into the Arab side, takes out a gun, and kills 24 Arabs. He claimed that there was going to be, he had seen evidence of a Palestinian, Palestinian uprising in Hebron, which would attack the Jewish community there and he was shot dead. But that, of course, was a big setback as well. Negotiations were put off for four months. And the terrorism continued. In 1994, uh, there was a bus on Diesendorf in the middle of Tel Aviv. Bomb explodes, and this was the beginning of the suicide bombers, which is a terrorist tactic that Yasser Arafat uh, innovated and 21 people were killed in the middle of Tel Aviv. Over that year, there would be five large attacks with 37 Jews and over, killed and over 100 wounded. Uh, in the first half of 1995, there were four more attacks with 38 killed and over 100 wounded. So, in reaction to this, there started to be a big division amongst the Israeli populace, a big rift. And um, the anti-Oslo uh, movement started to become more and more vocal. It was formed with right-wing people, right-wing politically, and who believed that Arafat was not a true partner in peace. It was formed by religious Zionists who believed religiously that Jewish people cannot give up any of the Holy Land and many of them were the inhabitants called settlers of Judah and, Judah and Shomron, Judah and Shomron, which is the West Bank, called the West Bank. And uh, the uh, actual Oslo Accords only passed in the Knesset by a vote of 61 to 59. Uh, between 1993 and 1995, Support for the peace process wavered from 60% of the population to 50%. And once again, here we have this question of how much of a majority do you need 
to make such existential decisions. And uh, in addition, what was to be the fate of the 130,000 uh, inhabitants of Yehuda and Shomron and Gaza? So there began to emerge more and more uh, rhetoric, violent rhetoric against Rabin. Rabin is a traitor. Rabin is deceiving the Jewish people and then calls to kill Rabin. And this, of course, was extremely troubling and uh, was not put down enough by uh, the right-wing parties. Uh, Netanyahu was criticized for allowing such things to be said at his rallies, although he, were not, he rejected it and did not uh, support it in any way. But um, the rhetoric started to get worse and worse. And so, in 1995, as Oslo II uh, was gearing up when they, the intention was to take the negotiations to the next step. And this is where um, the structure we have today was implemented, area A, B, C. Israel would pull out of six more Palestinian cities, hundreds of towns. The Palestinians would rule over area A with their own self-rule and with an enhanced police force. Israel would control Area C, uh, which would be exclusively Israel's control, and Area B would be joint control. And so in uh, 1995, mid-1995, Oslo II was signed. And uh, in November, the rhetoric had gotten so bad that they decided to create a gathering to support, in support of peace in Tel Aviv. And at first, uh, they were concerned, would they even get enough of a crowd? Then they were concerned for security. But the rally went forward. And 250,000 people gathered at King's Square, which would be renamed Rabin Square. Uh, Rabin spoke against the vitriol. He spoke how the path to negotiations were not easy but had to be pursued and all avenues tried for the sake of our children and grandchildren. Uh, with the enormous turnout, um, Shimon Peres at his side, they sang the song for peace, Shir L'Shalom, and uh, Rabin was said, reported to have said it was one of the happiest days of his life. And then as he was exiting, before he got into his car, a young Jewish law student came from behind, Yigal Amir, took out a revolver and shot and murdered Yitzhak Rabin. After he was apprehended, he yelled, I did it to save the state. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. The funeral. Uh, the nation was in shock. There were all night vigils. People came back to the square after they heard that Rabin, who had been whisked off to the hospital, had not made it through. And the nation was in a state of mourning. Rabin became the martyred symbol of peace and was elevated almost immediately to mythical status. The funeral garnered 60 heads of foreign governments. He was put in waiting uh, in front of the Knesset and tens of thousands of Israelis passed in front of his casket. And at the funeral, 
Assad of Jordan, Mubarak of Egypt came, uh, and President Clinton came as well, as well as 60 other heads of state, the head of the EU. Uh, and Yasser Arafat, the decision was made that he in fact would not come, citing security concerns, but the right-wing extremists did not relent even after Rabin was killed. And they were concerned that this would rile them up even more. So Arafat made sure to be shown sitting in front of the TV in his compound in Gaza watching the funeral. At the funeral, there were many heart-wrenching uh, eulogies. Two of them, two notable ones, Eitan Haber, his longtime chief of staff and confidant, took out a piece of paper that had been folded with bloodstains on it. It was the, the words of the song of peace that Rabin had sung a few nights earlier on stage, which now was stained in blood. And the, songs the, the words read, Let the sun rise and give the morning light. The purest prayer will not bring back those whose candle has been snuffed out and was buried in the dust. Nobody will return us from the dead dark pit. Neither the victory cheer nor the songs of prayer will help. So sing only a song of peace. The song originally intended to talk about the dead who, even in victory, the soldiers who were lost. And after the Six-Day War, Rabin, in a famous speech on Mount, at Hebrew University, uh, said these similar words. We rejoice and yet we are broken over our loss. So this poem too recognizes uh, that the loss cannot be brought back, but we must persevere forward with peace. Bill Clinton, who had now known Rabin for eight years through all of this process, uh, who grew up during the times of the murder of John F. Kennedy, and there are many parallels we can draw to this murder and his, uh, said we must learn from martyrdom that if people cannot let go of their hatred of their enemies, they risk sowing the seeds of hatred amongst themselves. In other words, the right-wing hatred of Arabs had turned in on other Jews. After the assassination, there was a commission uh, convened because Yigal Amir, who was not a, didn't live in Yudan Shomron. He was a from Herzliya, a law student at Bar Ilan University, had gotten involved in the settler movement. In a strange turn of events, three years before he had been recruited by the Shin Beit as an operative in Latvia and trained by them in weapons, came back to Israel, was active in the right wing settler movement, and the uh, head of the right-wing group at Bar Ilan University who recruited him, uh, whose name was uh, uh, Raviv, Avishai Raviv, turned out to be a uh, special secret services operative. And the right-wing group was funded by the Israeli secret service. What was this? This is what we call an agent provocateur. And it seems that the Israeli Secret Service had 
planted plants in the right-wing movement to make it look more extreme, and Raviv would go on rampages through the West Bank, breaking windows, beating up Arabs, and uh, the, the secret services, Shabak, tried to rein him in. He got cited, told them he would stop his antics, but continued in any case. And the, here is the big question, and the Shamgar Commission did not conclude this. They did recognize all of these elements. Uh, uh, however, it's not clear to what extent uh, Raviv put up Amir to do the murder, or whether he possibly gave him the gun. And it could have been Raviv being, a, in a sense, a double agent, working for the Secret Service, but pushing his own right-wing agendas at the same time. So, very strange turn of events. And out of these strange facts came some uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, one theory, written by Tel Aviv professor Michael Shamgar, was that the plot came from within the Shin Bet, from the Israeli Secret Service. One of the bodyguards who uh, left Rabin's flank open, there were a thousand security people. Ten of them were supposed to be surrounding Rabin at all times. When he came down from the stage, there were only five. So some people say that's strange or fishy. And this one of the security people died a few days later, supposedly of a suicide. So Shamgar claimed that um, this, in fact, that the murder was carried out by the Shinbet. Never verified. The other... Uh, conspiracy theory had to do with another strange incident, which was that right as after Raviv shot, uh, sorry, right after Amir shot Rabin, someone screamed out, it's blanks, it's only blanks. And it's reported that there were journalists who got a text almost seconds later saying Rabin shot. When Rabin was taken to the hospital, the hospital was not notified that he was arriving. And so some people say that it was set up by Raviv to be blanks so that it was a staged uh, uh, attempt at, uh, at murdering the prime minister, but really was all staged to garner left-wing sympathy and to marginalize the right-wingers. Once again, this was never proved. Uh, there are even other conspiracy theories, and um, nothing was ever substantiated. But these are some of the strange elements. In the aftermath of uh, the murder of Yitzhak Rabin, the moderate right, including uh, Netanyahu, disavowed the murder, of course, and recognized that they should not tolerate the rhetoric of Rabin being a Nazi, Rabin needing to be killed. And Israel woke up to the reality that a Jew had killed another Jew. Now, there are eerie parallels to a day in the Jewish calendar called the Fast of Gedalia. The day after Rosh Kippur is a fast day, uh, after Rosh Hashanah is a fast day. And it goes back to the Babylonian, the beginning of the Babylonian exile, when the Babylonians appointed a puppet Jewish leader over the Jewish community, 
and a Jewish extremist killed Gedalia. And it was so traumatic that 2,500 years later, we still fast on that day. So we see the parallels, unfortunately, to um, this national calamity of a Jew killing a Jew in a political murder. Uh, Shimon Peres took over afterwards and uh, tried to continue the peace process, pulling out of more areas, but the terrorism continued. And so too did the building of settlements. And those on the other side argued that Israel wasn't helping things by continuing to build and that that didn't show goodwill on their part. Now, as I mentioned, there was still opposition on the right, uh, security concerns, not trusting Arafat and the idealists. And in 1996, Benjamin Netanyahu defeated Perez in an election. And although he made some efforts to advance Oslo, he speeded up building in the territories as well. And the big question, of course, is would peace have been achieved had Yitzhak Rabin lived on? And what should be the policy going forward? So after camp, two more efforts were made after this period. In the year 2000, Bill Clinton, in one last-ditch effort, convened Camp David II, brought Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat to the White House, or to Camp David in Virginia, for 10 days. And Arafat would eventually walk out on the negotiations. Six years later, Abbas and Olmert met, also were offered what Israel viewed as a very uh, sweet deal for Arafat. And twice he refused these deals. And so the country is still grappling with whether such monumental decisions like giving back land or annexing land can be made by a coalition government patched together with a close majority or should there be some other type of national consensus. Back then the question was giving up land and as we know uh, today, tomorrow, July 1st, um, will be the decision whether to annex land. So we see the parallels and these questions which are still being grappled with. We see the fallout of not having a national consensus on this issue. And I'll quote you from David Horowitz who wrote the book Shalom Friend uh, based on the famous words of Bill Clinton. His last words to at the funeral were Shalom Chaver which he said to Yitzhak Rabin. And this is what Horowitz said. He said um, that Rabin would not have wanted to be seen as a martyr. He also didn't see himself as a peacenik. He believed peace was brokered by strong, secure Israel. He was skeptical of Oslo when Shimon Peres first came to him, and he always felt he needed to bring Peres back down to earth. He had his concerns and doubts as the process moved along, whether it was working, and as a pragmatic soldier, he always sought a way to a better future, but always questioning. There are those who said even questioned whether to continue with Oslo. And yet Shimon Peres, who was more of an idealist, was not able to bring it about. So what would have been? We can only speculate. But Israel lost a great leader, a great soldier and general who saved the country in 67, a great politician who made the effort and tried for peace. 
And I'll lead you, leave you with two last messages, two last lessons to be learned. The first one is from Gidon Eldad, the secular, from the secular kibbutz movement. And he, each side looking at their own uh, part in this terrible tragedy. And he said, we need to internalize more the feelings of disaster that the settlers have. Of those who are religious, we need to understand their deep anguish over giving over the land of Israel, and we need to learn how to speak to them in their language, even if it will still be disagreeing with them. And he, said, he admitted, perhaps we had not done that enough. We didn't try to address them and engage them enough. And the Bnei Akiva movement, after the assassination, or to 50,000 of their youth movement, shared a teaching of Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, the ideologue behind the position of never giving up land of Israel. And they quoted that same Rav Kuk as having said, no one should decide that he has the complete truth and complete justice. We have to be humble in our positions. We have to, the right wing has to entertain the possibility that looking at other truths and that perhaps there is something in them, once again, even if you disagree. But people have to be able to hear each other. Thank you for joining us. Have a good evening. Next Wednesday, we'll be doing the Jewish Matters podcast, Extraordinary Jewish Personalities. We'll be talking about Lubavitch Rebbe, the builder of a world movement. On Monday, we are starting a new series in the Jewish spirituality on Kabbalah, Kabbalah 101, how can Kabbalah speak to my life and speak to us as individuals? Good evening.